This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Essex Porter, who retired recently after a nearly 40-year career as a journalist for Cairo TV News in Seattle. From the early 1980s until 2021, Essex Porter witnessed a lot of history. That stunned people that you could actually build a building that tall in Seattle. What the heck is going on here? We spoke by phone in February 2022. Essex Porter, thanks for joining us for this episode of Columbia Conversations. You've had a long career as a journalist in Seattle. For those who may not be as familiar with your work because maybe they don't live in the area or they're relatively new to town, can you give us a brief sketch of what your journalism career consisted of here in Seattle? Well, I uh, came to Seattle from Portland and started in September of 1982 at uh, Cairo TV Channel 7. Uh, During that time, I've I've been a reporter. I've been... uh, co-anchor of the morning news. I was the first East Side Bureau chief. I was uh, the anchor of uh, what we called the uh, Puget Sound uh, business report for a time. Uh, I've worked every single shift, including <laughs> graveyard. And uh, I uh, have covered all kinds of stories, but I focused as much as I could on politics and government. Um, you know, I've... Uh, interviewed uh, every Seattle mayor or ex-mayor since uh, Wes Ullman. <laughs> and uh, I have uh, interviewed every governor or ex-governor since uh, Dixie Libre. I mean, this is kind of a dumb question, but I often find that journalists, especially career journalists like yourself, the overlap between someone who does day-to-day reporting on what's going on and the interest and knowledge of broader history and context that gets us to where we are today or where we might be headed tomorrow. Is that true for you? Are you a history guy as well? I, I am a history guy, uh, you know, certainly uh, not steeped in it as much as you are. <laughs> and I didn't grow up in Washington, so I don't know a ton of Washington history. I know, I know some, but, um, you know, it, it's very you do see the parallels and it's uh and and it, it can you know it's, it's if you haven't lived the history it can be a little harder to to see but uh you know some of the some of the same struggles we have now um we faced uh you know shaped maybe a little differently but the, the basic struggles are the same and you said you were in portland before um where did you grow up and when did you first move to portland i'm a military kid i'm i am uh a native of Chicago, but I did not grow up there. Um, you know, my dad was in the army, uh, so I did a lot of growing up on Okinawa, Japan. We had uh, two tours there. Uh, I did a lot of growing up uh, in uh, Junction City, Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, we had a couple of tours there, um, and uh, I uh, was lucky to spend uh, my senior year in high school uh, when we were assigned uh, to Hawaii. So uh, I'm a graduate of Redford High School uh, in Hawaii. That's the high school that serves uh, the Pearl Harbor uh, Navy base. Wow. And so when you came to Seattle in 1982, how old were you? 
Oh, uh, that, that's a, that's a really good question. I, I have to, to uh, do the math. <laughs> uh, I was, you know, I was fairly young, certainly much younger, but you know, yep, yep. You know, you're asking a reporter to do math here. They said there'd be no math. That's why we got into reporting. Yeah. What What did attract you to journalism? Oh, just that sense of being there when history is made. I think that's the first thing. Uh, you know, I was always interested in uh, public affairs uh, and history uh, as a student. Um, and, you know, you, the great events would happen. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've told this story on Twitter a few times, but I, uh, I was a second grader in Kansas uh, the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. And, you know, uh, back then they would let second graders walk maybe a, a third of a mile or whatever, uh, home by themselves, have lunch at home, uh, and then and then walk back to uh, to school. And, uh, you know, my my mom was working, so I was a latchkey kid. I'd go, I'd walk home, I'd uh, have my lunch, uh, I'd watch some television. I remember the bulletin slide from CBS News. That was the one station we got really clearly at that time, those days before cable. And I didn't want to be late for school, so I left before they announced that President Kennedy had been killed. I didn't find out until I'd gotten back uh, to school. And all that weekend, um, my family and I, we watched the coverage. Uh, the station we could get was the CBS station. We loved Walter Cronkite anyway. Uh, we watched all of his coverage. Um, federal employees uh, had the the day off that uh, Monday so that the nation could watch the funeral. Uh, and, you know, uh, I didn't know it then really because I really wanted to be a scientist, but I think that's where the seed was planted. Yeah, you are a history guy. I, got news. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that, I mean, that's exactly, I, that, that, we're describing that wanting to be there to sort of talk about things that are happening and being aware of the import and the weight of things, especially when you're that young in age. I've talked to so many journalists who get that kind of, maybe they get it from their parents or something, but they're exposed to some big world event or national event, and it just sort of charts the path for wanting to be involved in sharing those stories. So that's, that, that's a great origin story. It makes perfect sense to me. Um, so Seattle, 1982. Let me ask one of my big dumb questions. What was Seattle like in 1982 for you, an African-American guy coming to town as a journalist? Well, you know, to me, uh, you know, as an African-American guy, uh, Seattle was no more or less open than uh, any other place that I had experienced. Um, you know, I, I did not experience, uh, uh, you know, overt discrimination, overt racism. Um, now, you know, frankly, it's a defense mechanism um, and, and, and former CBS correspondent Ed Bradley talked about this in a visit to Seattle. You know, you, you can see something as a black person that will make you angry every day. And if you react to every single thing, you will be completely crazy. So as a defense mechanism, um, I didn't react 
to everything I might have seen. Sometimes, you know, my brain didn't even see it, even if it was happening. So, I, you know, I felt, um, and I certainly felt welcome among my colleagues uh, at, at Cairo. So, um, you know, for me, the, um, the, the challenge was, you know, meeting and getting to know uh, some of the, the, the leaders and community members in the black community here so I could help tell their story. But that was the same thing for me in trying to learn some of the leaders and, and people uh, in the multiple Asian communities uh, that are here as well. Um, I wanted to get to know people so that I could uh, tell some of the stories that might not normally be uh, on the agenda of, of a news department and a, and a station um, you know, that was led by whites who might not just be thinking that there are other stories that need to be told. And, you know, in, in terms of your individual, your personal experiences here, especially in that early, the early 80s when you first were here, did you ever get pushed back um, trying to do a story with overt racism? Yeah, uh, no, not certainly, certainly not that I noticed. But again, I'm not, you know, I'm not always looking. Hmm. It, it had to be pretty blatant for me to see it. <laughs> no, no, no. People, people, people push back on telling stories because they didn't want the stories to be told. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah. the race of the reporter that was the problem. It was what they were doing in the story that was the problem. It's that old, old sort of Mike Wallace is out in the driveway kind of effect. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a lot more of that. <laughs> um, what about you know Seattle in general? I mean, I, I'm. I was born in 1968, so I think I was 13 or 14 in 1982 when you first started reporting at Cairo TV, and I was a viewer. And I, my memory of Seattle in those days is, you know, it's rotary dial phones. There's no cell phones. There's, you know, there's only a handful of TV stations because we didn't have cable. And there's, you know, there's radio stations and everything and a couple of daily newspapers. In terms of the, uh, the character or the personality in that unique place you've been in for 40 years, watching the city grow and change and evolve as people move here and people move away and money comes in through Microsoft and other technology and Boeing leaves town, the headquarters leaves town anyway. Can you point to things and say, yeah, these things are different. These, these things have changed about the character of the city of, that I first came to in 1982? Yeah, you know, uh, this, this was very much uh, Emmett Watson's city. <laughs> um, you know, that, that, that lesser Seattle thought. Um, and it always struck me, remember, I'm not from here. So it always struck me that Seattle was the city that was very uncomfortable growing up. <laughs> so, you know, Seattle, Seattle, you know, one strain, wanted prosperity, uh, wanted to be a world-class city. And the other strain was like, does that mean things are going to have to change? <laughs> and so there, you know, and that tension made for a lot of the stories I really love to cover. Uh, one of the stories uh, I covered was uh, when the, the Columbia Tower was built, that stunned people that you could actually build a building that tall in Seattle. What the <laughs> heck is going on here? So then there was an initiative to limit the size of skyscrapers. You remember that? Boy, I had, hadn't thought about that for decades. I forgot completely about that, actually. Yes. Yeah, there was, a, <laughs> there was an initiative to limit the size of skyscrapers, and the initiative passed. <laughs> so for a time, you know, that's what put 
some of the, the limits on how high you could build. And then there were uh, things you could put, you could add to a skyscraper like a daycare center to uh, gain a few more floors. And it also uh, led to the development of the high rise uh, apartments and condos that you see, especially uh, in the Belltown area. So, um, but you know, that was the kind of tension that, that, that I witnessed, that I uh, covered uh, in this city. And for someone who might not know who Emmett Watson was, can you describe Emmett Watson and what Lesser Seattle represented from your perspective, sort of moving here when you did? Um, you know, uh, Emmett Watson, and uh, you know, I want to be I want to be careful uh, because I'm doing this from memory. Uh, but uh, you know, Emmett Watson was uh, a, a writer, uh, a newspaper columnist uh, who who championed the idea that Seattle should not lose its special character as he saw it, the special character from the 40s, the 50s, uh, the 60s, uh, as Seattle grew up. And so uh, he, was, uh, he was a proponent of, of growing slowly. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, not... Uh, not inviting the world here to uh, to show up and uh, bid up the price of houses and build skyscrapers for offices, um, and you know the whole movement was called uh, uh, Lesser Seattle. And I think you know some of it, some of that I, I'm sure was uh, you know a bit of an exaggeration on his part, but he wanted to make people think of where we were going, what we were doing, what we might be giving up as Seattle changed. It always seemed to me that Seattle was that, you know, it was, it was the people who were pushing for faster growth and that world city connection. It seems like those people pretty much trialed and triumphed and prevailed with things like the Goodwill Games here and with even the World's Fair way back in 1962. Right. But it seemed right. to me, and maybe tell me what you think about this, because you, you, I mean, you probably covered this. There was that time, I think it was around, I can't remember the year exactly, sometime around the year 2000, maybe a few years before that where the city council killed the bid for the Olympics. That to me seemed like that's where Seattle officially is not trying to be this world-class city of the highest degree possible. They've got, there's, there's a, too much uh, trepidation or too much reluctance to try to do what an Olympics would do to this city, which isn't necessarily a good thing. I mean, it depends on your perspective, but I don't know if you remember that. Is, am I making more of a big deal than that actually was? Yeah, I, I don't think so. But it, and again, I'm you know uh, memories can be fuzzy, so I'm not going to be precise on the timeline. Of course. But it, in that in that general in that general uh, timeline, um, you know the the Goodwill Games had been an uh, an unexpected su success here. You know, I remember uh, at Cairo Radio back when Cairo Radio and Cairo TV were 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 co-owned. Mm -hmm. Cairo Radio made a huge deal of extending traffic reports from the morning drive where they had always been to all day traffic reports for fear <laughs> that the Goodwill games would clog all the traffic and people would need to know. And that's how we got all day traffic reports. <laughs> well, it turned out there was no traffic. The Goodwill games ran so well, it was great, but we kept the all day traffic reports. <laughs> that's a good and, point. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> And also, remember, right around that time, uh, we had the WTO meeting. Yeah. And 
uh, w, WTL and those riots. So there got to be the feeling that, you know, bringing the world to Seattle could be more expensive and troublesome uh, than it might be worth. Yeah. And plus, even then, everybody knew that the Olympics simply is a major budget drainer for any city that, that takes it up, and, which is why almost no city's been on it anymore. Yeah, and that's and, just that's and, just for the bribes you're talking about now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so with, back to Emmett Watson and back to 1982 versus 2022. Did Seattle lose its character? Has the city changed beyond where it should have changed or could have changed? Has it lost its way compared to 40 years ago? I don't think Seattle has lost its way, uh, but has it lost its character? You know, was there a single character to Seattle anyway? And, you know, for some folks, I, I think Seattle has lost its character. Um, you know, for, for me personally, you know, I always wanted to live in a big city. Uh, Seattle was the biggest city I'd ever uh, had lived in. Um, and I'm always, I had always looked to the future and, you know, the the icon Space Needle gives Seattle such a, a futuristic look. You know, I always say uh, I was a huge fan of that Jetsons cartoon. <laughs> yep. And the Space Needle looks just like the Jetsons or the Jetsons looks just like the Space Needle. But, I, but you know, for me, that's all great. Uh, <laughs> there, there are, there are, you know, definite, definitely things that have been lost. I think the bigger problem is, is that as, Many have prospered here. Many have been left behind, and it's tougher for many. Yeah. And um, if those who had been left, who have been left behind, were doing a little better, I think we would all be more comfortable with the changes that have come. Yeah, nicely put. And I imagine there's stories that you probably covered again and again throughout those 40 years where there was little to no progress. Um, I mean, TV journalism has changed quite a bit. For one, one sort of fluffy question before the deeper question. Did they ever make you go and talk to the guys who set up couches out on 4th Avenue for the torchlight parade before the parade, like the day before? Uh, yes, yeah, so I have talked to them. <laughs> that was always my favorite story. It was, just, it was so predictable. Every summer, there'd be the guys with the couches out on 4th Avenue. and that, I, I miss that kind of TV journalism. That seems like it's from a different time. Like, I don't think there's... Um, isn't necessarily the the airtime for those kinds of stories anymore because it's just there's there's so much other bad news or things have sped up. How- well, you know, it's, these these days some of the news is a, a little more intense, so you you don't necessarily get a, get around to that. Yeah. Um, you know, um, when the, when there are quiet periods for news, uh, we love to to cover uh, the torchlight parade. Uh, you know, I was. I was pleased to be asked uh, to be part of the torchlight parade, you know, actual live coverage. Oh wow! Uh, one year got sprayed with silly string and, and the whole thing. <laughs> so, so how did TV news change in the time? You know, along with the technology, you know, speeding up and getting smaller and lighter and faster. I guess what changes did you witness in those forty years of of covering Seattle through the through a television camera? Well, everything sped up for TV news too. Um, uh, you know. When I came to Seattle, we were already using the electronic cameras. But when I started covering TV news, we were using film. And film slowed things down because, you you know, you needed an hour or two to, to be sure the film could be processed in time for the news. You didn't do uh, multiple newscasts 
spread throughout the day. And um, you certainly didn't go, uh, you certainly didn't present your stories live uh, from, from every venue. Uh, so the, the, tech, the technology made it possible um, for news to be on all the time, for a local station to have, uh, you know, multiple hours of news a day. And I, I don't think I can count uh, quickly enough how many hours of news per day we have at Channel 7. Uh, but, uh, and, and, and Channel 7 doesn't have as many hours of news per day as, as some of the other stations in town. But uh, when, the news is, when the news is always on, you know, there's less time to cover the more secondary stories or to, you know, cover those stories that aren't the breaking biggest headlines of the day. Uh, because, you know, you are, you know, you are making sure that every one of those newscasts has the latest breaking content. And after you've spent your resources doing that, um, there's not much time to do much else. Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't, you know, when you watch news here uh, in Seattle, you do see in-depth reporting, uh, you do see an investigative uh, reporting, um, uh, but you don't always see sort of that, those stories that are in between that, that take more time, but, uh, you know, aren't the, aren't the hard-hitting investigative pieces. Yeah. And then, you know, I imagine 40 years ago, I mean, I know 40 years ago, you weren't having to then go do your Twitter feed or your Facebook or your social media posts. You had this TV story to produce, and then next day you do another one, I assume, right? It's like it's there's so much more of this 24-hour availability and 24-hour news cycle now has completely changed the nature of the business in a way that, on, on one hand, is pretty exciting and pretty cool from just the, the constant stream of news if you want it. But I imagine as a working journalist, it's, it, it's probably exhausting or, or feels exhausting at times. Well, it, you know, it does. It 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 never really ends. You are, you are even if you are not presenting something on the air or online, you're always thinking about it. You're always, you're you're always perhaps seeing another story around the corner or seeing uh, another another uh, facet of the story you covered that day that you didn't get in that day's report. You know, maybe now you're off work, but but you know. Hey, that's an interesting thing. Uh, let me tweet about that a little bit, uh, or let me or let me rewrite that paragraph in the online story and ask the online editors to add this to what we've we've done. So, uh, yeah, it's you know there there always there always was twenty four hour news, but now you can do twenty four hour news. <laughs> now, did you were there people at Cairo TV? I'm trying to remember who was even the 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 core network, the anchor team in the early '80s. Were there people there who kind of became your mentor or were sort of these old time figures in TV news that we might recognize their names now? They're not on, not on the air anymore, but that who sort of helped you earlier in your career and kind of functioned as a mentor in your early years? You know, there there were informal mentors all around. And it's, you know, um, one person who who um, who really uh, helped. Um, uh, you'll recall a Cairo 7 anchor, Gary Justice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Gary Justice was instrumental in hiring me from uh, from Portland, and uh, you know, we didn't sit around and talk about uh, the ins and outs of journalism or whatever. But uh, you know, Gary might see something or say something that would make me think about uh, you know how how um, 
things were being done or how we how we could approach uh, a story differently or might have a perspective that I hadn't actually uh, hadn't actually noticed. Um, and uh, um, you know, so th there were there were encounters like that. There were you know there were there were people who were helpful on an ad hoc basis you know maybe with a particular issue or a particular perspective and you just never knew when it would happen yeah there, I, i've worked in a few newsrooms i've never really worked full-time my stuff's always been fairly part-time but there's a sense in a in a, a solid tv newsroom or a radio newsroom where people like and respect each other it feels like that comes across in the product in the broadcast whether it's tv or radio whether the people like each other and trust each other and that seems like that's been really key and I, that seems like that was that was certainly present in in the, those old days at Cairo TV, um, and it it seems like it's it's still present there in the stations where you can just tell. I mean, is that and that's kind of an outsider's perspective. Is that is that roughly true? Do you think in your experience, or you know, I I definitely think the audience uh, can tell, especially for the for the uh, reporters and anchors they see all, all the time. You know, they can you know. <laughs> Just like when you go into a grocery store, you can tell if there are good bosses and if the staff likes and helps each other out, you'll know what the working situation is like just by the way you see them treat each other and you see them treat you. And you know when you step into a happy workplace or a happier workplace. Uh, and it, it's the it's the same thing. A, a television newsroom may never be a happy workplace because everybody's working really hard, and uh, so you know it may be not amongst the happiest workplaces. There is there there is a lot of a lot of pressure, but you can tell, and uh, you know you can tell when a when a workplace is not a good uh, TV news workplace. I've had a lot of bosses, and even though I worked at the same building for nearly 40 years uh, there's been four different companies so I, I, uh, you know and, and, and some of these situations have been happier than others i'll just put it that way Any particular... by the way and and and, and dropping no, not not to drop but too big of a hint you know the the, the folk the cairo seven i retired from it's an absolutely great place to work with great people and and i do miss it excellent now, uh, one question um, in terms of the, uh, and I'll let you be really generous with your time. Any really nightmarish interviews that, where you can sort of describe it without maybe naming the person, but kind of leaving it up to us to guess and kind of maybe you had to interview the person multiple times. Maybe they were an elected official or some kind of a, a big wig or something that sort of they were just sort of notoriously difficult to, to get in touch with or to get information out of. Boy, that that is a that's a that is a tough question, you know, um, <laughs> you know, um, I think of uh, something, it's kind of something uh, similar to uh, what the quarterback Russell Wilson says, you know, that you um, you have to have a short memory. Uh, you threw an interception, you know, that was last year, even though it was two minutes ago. And now you got to go out and, and somehow get the team back to a touchdown, right? So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know that there were any like, you know, unbelievably, awful terrible um interviews um and you know there, there were people who you know there are definitely people who didn't want to answer questions wanted to talk around questions 
you know, didn't want to um, uh, clarify their positions. Uh, but those weren't necessarily bad interviews because the audience saw them squirm. The audience <laughs> knew what was going on. And, you know, you know, I always like to say, the, it's not the questions that are the, that are the problem. It's the answers that are the problem. <laughs> questions aren't tough. The answers are tough. And the audience can tell. So, you know, uh, I will try to ask you uh, direct questions and give you a chance to be clear. But if you don't want to take the chance, your answer is still going on TV. Very nice. That's great. <laughs> so what will you miss the most? I mean, I assume, are you or actually, are you doing anything in re, in retirement related to journalism or anything like that? Or what are you going to do with your, with all your spare time now? Well, at the, at, at the, at the moment, I'm really trying to take care of uh, home matters, uh, you know, uh, but, um, and I'm not, you know, at, at the moment, I'm not uh, teaching or anything like that. I'm staying active uh, with the uh, Seattle Association of Black Journalists, uh, a great group of uh, journalists, uh, um, most of whom are <laughs> much younger than I am, which is great. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, stay, staying active with them as, as, uh, as, as we try to continue to connect with community and, and, and uh, make sure that all voices are heard. Um, you know, and we'll see where things go from there. You know, my, um, uh, my, my contemporaries who have retired, like, uh, like Connie Thompson from, uh, Como Channel 4, uh, reminds me not to jump into anything big right away. Uh, give it some time, let things settle, and we'll see what happens. Well, congratulations on a great long career at Cairo TV. I will point out you were able to dodge the question about how old you were in 1982, so I'll congratulate you on dodging that question very well. But we can figure out, based on being in second grade in 1963, I think we can guess about your age. So anyway. I'll, um... I'll let you guys figure it out. The only reason I dodged it is because I couldn't get my calculator on the phone quick enough while we were talking. All right. Essex Porter, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Columbia Conversations, and congratulations again. Admire your work, Felix. And, and and the the news stories that you have also led on, like the uh, the National Archives hearing. Oh, thanks for saying. Thank you to Essex Porter for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. For more about Northwest journalism history, plan a visit to the Washington State History Museum during summer 2022 for news of the day. It's an exhibit that examines how big events in Evergreen State history were covered by the media. Columbia is the quarterly magazine of Northwest history, reaching thousands of readers around the old Oregon country. To propose an article, to subscribe, or to give a gift subscription, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.